Good evening. It's a, a pleasure to be here. It's been a, a long week. It's been a long two weeks. I guess it's sort of been about two weeks since we left home. Uh, we spent a week in Ensenada. I guess we popped home for a, a night. We, my wife and I washed laundry like crazy. The girls folded laundry and then we packed and left and we've been up in LA for the last week visiting the Latino assemblies. Uh, and yesterday we spent the day handing out CDs and tracts and uh, talking to people about the Lord uh, in the street fair and we had a good day. And uh, this morning we're at Avenue 54 in the Latino meetings and here we are the end of our meetings, we head back tomorrow. Leo and I both have Bible studies to teach at 6 o'clock. Uh, American time, not Mexican time, so we have to leave fairly early. It's, it's a strange influence we've had. It seems one of the only influences we have is we can start meetings on time and not on Mexican time, which used to drive me crazy, and that's why I have white hair. Uh, although sometimes I blame it on my daughters, but that's besides the point. And while we're packing and traveling and doing a lot of speaking in Spanish, I forgot my English Bible, so I have a, a new Bible, but this one doesn't know how to preach yet. There's no notes, there's no underlining, there's no highlighting at all. So if I make mistakes, it's going to be because this Bible hasn't learned to preach, but I'm going to have my preaching Bible with all its colors and notes in Spanish. So if I accidentally say something in Spanish, somebody will have to hold up their hand and say, brother, you're speaking in tongues and we need an interpreter. <laughs> Otherwise, you've got to revert back to English, please. And so, uh, well, that's how we'll go tonight. So if I do make mistakes, please don't hesitate to lift your hand and say, wait a minute, stop, time out, we need to go back to English. And some of you speak Spanish and know some words of Spanish, and we'll find a translator between all of us here this evening. But let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1 this evening. Daniel chapter 1. I was thinking about teaching from Daniel chapter 9, uh, but for some reason maybe we better start in the beginning. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such that had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them for three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belshazzar, unto Hananiah Shadrach, unto Mishael of Meshach, and of Asariah of Abednego. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word to us this evening. Some of you looked up and thought, you're not reading verse 8? And no, I'm not going to read verse 8. Because most preaching from Daniel chapter 1 sort of starts at verse 8. And they purposed in their heart not to eat the contaminated food. And that's usually where we start. But if God wanted us to start in verse 8, he would have made verse 8 verse 1. And so he put seven verses before verse 8 so we would learn something. First he tells us when it happened. In the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, about 600. 105 years before Christ. And he says to him that, in verse 2, that the Lord gave Jehoiakim and the people of Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It's important to think about Daniel at this time. He was probably between 15 and 20 years old. And he was ripped up from his family from his city, from his country, and taken captive to a faraway place. What do you think he felt like? I know people who have something that we in Mexico call mummy-itis. And mummy-itis means that they're so stuck to their moms, they could possibly never, ever even consider the idea of moving anywhere further than a block from their mother's house. Because their mother does everything. It makes it really hard to preach those verses where you're supposed to leave and cleave. Or cleave and... I never understood why a cleaver cuts things in half, but the word cleave means stick together. I never figured that out. Maybe somebody can help me after the meeting. But when you're only a block from your mommy's house and you can't live any further than a block from your mommy's house, you have mommy-itis. And some people don't function that well without their mummies close by. But there was Daniel, and not only Daniel, but all the people selected. He only chooses to talk about four of them. There's probably hundreds. And they were all ripped out away from their family at 15 years old, or maybe a little bit older. How would you have felt? How would you have felt watching the invaders, your enemies, coming up to the temple of the living God and ransacking it and taking the vessels and sticking them in the house of their own God. That was a sign of utter defeat, utter humiliation. We've conquered you and your God couldn't do anything about it. Nah, 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 nah. That's what they were saying. And they would put their fingers on their nose like this and sort of blow the trumpet and say, your God is dead. What would you do if you were in Daniel's place and Hananiah's place and Mishael's place and Azariah's place? How would you feel that it looked like your God couldn't defend himself? You know, beloved, things don't always go right in this world. Have you ever noticed that? And sometimes people say, you know, the truth will win out. They sometimes use a verse, well, uh, I'm forgetting who said it now, the, the high priest. 
And he said, well, if, if he's from God, you can't fight against it, but if he's not, he'll get defeated. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't from God that don't get defeated here in this world. Do you ever notice that? Do you ever notice a watchtower society still goes on? That ain't from God. The Latter-day Saints, that keeps growing. That ain't from God. The universal church, that keeps growing. That ain't from God. The health and wealth, prosper gospel, that keeps growing. That ain't from God. But sometimes we have this strange way of thinking that when God's in it, he won't be defeated. And beloved, in the end, he won't be defeated. But sometimes, while we're here in the world below, bad things happen. And sometimes it seems like God is a long ways away. Sometimes it feels like God isn't close. Sometimes it feels like he isn't helping us. He's in the heavens, and maybe he's not in the heavens because my knees and my faith are starting to waver. What do you think Daniel and his friends all felt like at that time? But, beloved, when all was said and done, and God put on Daniel's heart to start writing the prophecies of Daniel, he wrote, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim and the people of Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He looked back and he said, God was in it. <laughs> it's amazing. When you get to chapter 9 and it's starting to read, and he's reading in, 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 in Jeremiah chapter, well, he probably read the whole thing, but it focuses on chapter 25 and chapter 29. And sometimes from chapter 29, we write that, verse for people who are graduating from something important and I know the plans that I have for you good plans they're not bad plans do you remember you've probably given you given that verse away or you received that verse I received that verse when I graduated from university but you know the context of that is you know you're going to feel like you're going through hell on earth you're going to be ripped up by your roots you're going to be displaced. You're going to go to a place where you're a refugee. And you're going to feel like you are less than a worm. But be aware that I know the thoughts I have for you. Thoughts of good and not thoughts of evil. And God is assuring them there in Jeremiah that you're going to feel like you're going through the ringer. Elisa just went through the ringer a little bit. She was never going to be a grandma. And then there came the surprise announcements. I'm pregnant. And then it came time to go in. And the baby had the cord wrapped around the neck. And then they found some infection in Vera's intestines. And then they had to do surgery in one... For a while, the baby was in children's hospital, and Vera was in another hospital, and, and now everything's right again. But sometimes in life, it feels like you've gone through the ringer. I see Gary back there. He's felt like he's gone through the ringer a few times. <laughs> and sometimes it seems, beloved, that God's not close. 
That if he was really an all-powerful God, why isn't he fixing this situation for us? And what a comfort we get from verse 2, that God gave Jehoiakim and the people. God was still in control. He knew what he was doing. Doesn't that comfort you? And those storms of life come, and you understand that God's still in control, that he's still able to work all things out for good. It doesn't say all things are good, does it, in Romans chapter 8. It says he works all things out to good. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that God is able to make everything beautiful in his time. Imagine turning the, the most ugly, gruesome scene the world has ever seen with a face marred and puffy and, and ruined beyond recognition that you can't even decide who it is and turn that into a beautiful salvation. The one who's fairer than 10,000 to our souls. That's the God, beloved, who put Jehoiakim and the people of Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. He's the one that allows us to go through the trials and the tribulations of our lives and has everything under his control. Does that encourage you? It encourages me. I've been through the ringer a couple times too. But to understand that God's still in control, and he can put us wherever he wants. And if you read through Daniel and you see the influence Daniel had in the world, not only in his little part of the, the world, but in the whole world, was his influence. If he would have stayed in Jerusalem, he would have probably been a nobody forever. Who would have heard of Joni Tata? Johnny Tata, I said it wrong. If she wasn't a quadriplegic. Who would have ever heard of her? Who would have heard of Macaulay and uh, the martyrs in Ecuador, Nate Saint, Jim Elliot? Who would have heard of them if it didn't appear that they, their wives just went through hell? But imagine a God, beloved, that can take those horrible events and make them beautiful. That's what Daniel's talking about here. And he's trying to encourage the people of Israel that don't worry, God's still in it. You're going to read my prophecy, but there's something good coming. And he wants us to remember that God is in control. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, we're going to skip down a little bit to, to verse six. There were four young men of importance to Daniel, and he mentions their name, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Asariah. And, and Ashpenaz, the king of prince of the eunuchs, the chief of the eunuchs, wanted to change their names under Nebuchadnezzar's orders. And so, Daniel, you're going to be called... Belzazar. 
Now Daniel wants to say, and the meaning of his name is, God is my judge. You've probably heard that before, haven't you? Especially if your name's Daniel. But you and I, we have this prejudice when we say the word judge. When I say the word judge, who thinks of a person wearing a black coat and sitting behind a desk with a gavel in their hand? Anybody, when I say the word judge, we might think of Judge Judy. I'm trying to think of other famous judges that I've, but none of them are coming to mind. Uh, she's the most famous judge probably. Clarence Thomas. Um, but that's, that's how you and I perceive judges. Sometimes we get a ticket and we go before a judge and we say, well, yeah, I was speeding, but you know, it was only like two miles over the speed limit. Do you think that's a $700 fine? I was on my way, my pregnant wife was in labor and she was like eight centimeters dilated already. We had to go a little bit faster. And the judge wearing his black, that's how he would say, okay, I'll let you off with that. But that's how you and I consider a judge. But in the Bible, there's a book, and it's called the book of Judges. And you know, in the book of Judges, we never read of a judge with a black robe on with a gavel in his or her hand. In the book of Judges, a judge is actually a savior. It's actually, or she, is actually a liberator. Do you remember that vicious cycle that the Israelites would go through? They'd wander away from God, and then they'd sin, and then they'd go after other gods, and then they'd be, God would send the enemy to conquer them, and then they'd be conquered, and then they'd be slaves for X number of years, and then when they finally couldn't put up with it anymore, even though they shouldn't have put up with it ever at all, and they should have clamored out, we don't say clamored, what do we say in English? Called out to God from the very beginning, Sometimes they went like 20 years being slaves before they cried out to God. And then God raised up a judge, remember? That's how it says. And the judge freed the people from their slavery. He delivered the people. He was their savior. He was their deliverer. Do you remember in, in the time when Moses was in Egypt and they were leaving Egypt? And, and the very first thing that Moses did was he said, you know, we're going to have the Passover. And when we have the Passover, you need to get a perfect lamb, examine it for a few days. And if it ain't perfect, throw it away and get a new one. Or share it with your neighbor who has a good one because you can use it with your neighbor because it has to happen on this night. And if you don't have a good lamb, well, here out of luck, but you can share it with your neighbor because, and then take the blood and put it on the door, the head of the door, the headers, and, the, and on the posts. And when the angel of Jehovah comes and he sees the blood, he will pass over. And the very first thing that the Israelites were delivered from is death. And then they all went out and they hiked up their, their, their togas and they tucked them into their sashes, and then they went running away. And then they got caught by the Red Sea. 
And then God put this pillar of cloud and fire, depending on whether it was daytime or nighttime between them and the Egyptians, because the Egyptians, the Pharaoh decided, you know, my dad has a pyramid. My uncle has a pyramid. My auntie has a pyramid. Everybody else has a pyramid, but I don't have a pyramid, and I just let all my workers go. Well, I want to have a pyramid. So he went not to kill the Israelites. He went to bring them back into slavery. And then God opened up the Red Sea, and the Israelites passed through on dry ground, and then the Egyptians tried it, and they all drowned. And they were freed from the slavery of Egypt. Not only from death, but also from slavery. Now, beloved, we don't have to think very hard, do we, about another one who saves you and I from death by his blood. The Lord Jesus shed his blood, and he died so you and I don't have to die, didn't he? That's what we call salvation from the wages of sin. But he didn't only save us from the very wages of sin, did he? He also saves us from the very power of sin. We call that sanctification, don't we? And not only are we... It, what good does it do to take a, a sinner and just leave them in that same condition? This is an example of my grace, says God. That's all you can do. Well, any old drunk can look like an any old drunk. That's an example of the power of the gospel? Who would want part of that? I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. I don't like the way I am. I don't like being a sinner. I don't like being ungodly. I don't like being weak. I don't like it. And I need God's help. And if he can't do it, who can? And so God goes into the business of sanctification, doesn't he? And he takes a drunk and a vile sinner like you and I, and he transforms us into saints. And he sanctifies us so that you and I are fit for the master's use, so that we will be his witnesses, not only in Jerusalem and Judea and Israel but in Samaria, but unto the ultimate outermost parts of the world. And beloved, that's what our Savior, that's what our Liberator, that's what our Deliverer does. And when we say, God is my judge, Daniel, he's not talking about some person sitting behind a desk with a gavel in his hand. He's saying, God is my judge as a deliverer, as a savior, as a liberator. That's who God is. And they wanted to change his name to Belsasar. Oh, how do we say this in Ojala? How do you say Ojala in English? I don't know how you say Ojala in English. Oh, I sure hope that Bell delivers. I think that's how you'd say ojala. I sure hope. Maybe. Leo says maybe we could translate it maybe. Maybe Bell will, will take care of me. Imagine going from the sureness of God is my judge to 
maybe um, the, the bell will, will take care of me. That's what he was doing. And it's interesting as we read the book of Daniel that he's always referred to almost exclusively as Daniel. They'll say his name, Belshazzar, in, in ch chapter 5 a few times, but they'll always include his other name, Daniel, along with it. Then we come to Hananiah. Hananiah means Jehovah gives grace. Jehovah gives grace. Imagine a God that gives grace, and not only gives grace, but has a name that we can call him. He's a knowable God. He's somebody we can get to know on a, we might say, a first-name basis. Someone who actually likes us and wants to be with us. Jehovah, a personal name for God. Sometimes when I talk to people from the Watchtower Society, they say, well, God has a name. And I say, I know. Isn't that great that he wants to be in your life and in my life? And they start scratching their heads. What's he trying to pull over us? But that's when you say his name, that's what you're implying. You can know God on a first name basis. We don't have to say Mr. Chun. We can say, Josh. We don't even have to say his whole name anymore. Because it's not formal. We're friends. Imagine a God that has a name, and he can be that friend that's closer than a brother. And this friend gives grace. Everything you need, he can give through grace. Isn't that a great thing? He wanted to change his name to Shadrach, the command of Aku, the command of Aku, grace versus commands. Now, one of the things about the commandments in the Old Testament is God says, do this or don't do that, and if you do do what you're not supposed to do and you don't do what you're supposed to do, here's the penalty. That's actually the whole reason they got taken away. And when you get to chapter 9 and you read the confession of Daniel, you'll see that he said, God, you're exactly right. It says in Leviticus that this is what's going to happen if we disobey, if we go a whoring after other gods. This is what's going to happen, and this is what happened. And we are in the place where we deserve to be. And that's what the law says. Do it or you're going to suffer. Don't do it or you're going to suffer. But it never ever, beloved, gives you the wisdom. It never ever gives you the strength to do or not to do the things you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. But, beloved, grace is much greater than a command, isn't it? Grace not only tells you what to do or what not to do, but it gives you the wisdom it gives you the strength to be able to complete the task that God has given. Isn't that great? When he says, thou shalt not, and you don't have to do it in your own strength. Because if you try to do it in your own strength, you know what's going to happen? You're going to fail. It always happens. 
But God says, here's what you're supposed to do. And, and actually, I don't want you to do it because I want to do it through you. So all you have to do is be available and be willing and let me work through you. That's his grace, giving us what we don't deserve. Because sometimes you and I try to do things in our own strength, don't you? Don't I? Sometimes you and I try to do things or try not to do things, and, and we fail at it because we didn't wait on the Lord, because those that wait on the Lord, he renews their strength. He gives them the ability to do what they're supposed to do or not do. Sometimes you and I battle with sin. And there's a, according to a famous woman author who's not always biblical, there's a battle for our minds. And sometimes we lose those battles because we try to do it in our own strength. But God gives grace to the humble the ones who say, you know, God, I've sinned. But Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. And I confess my sin. Oh, John said he wrote these things. Beloved, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if you do perchance sin, we've got an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who ever lives to intercede for you and I. And God gives grace. Pero, excuse me. Jehovah gives grace. Miss Mishael, who is like God? I want to change his name to Meshach. Who is like Aku? Oh, by the way, Aku is the moon god. The moon god's still alive and well today. In the Western world, we have something called the Red Cross, don't we? In the Middle East, they don't have the Red Cross. Did you know that? What do they have? The Red Moon. In the shape of a crescent. Who is like Aku? You know, everybody's like Aku. <laughs> sort of a, a strange question. Aku says, do this and do that and do this and do that. And never gives you the strength nor the wisdom on how to do this and how to do that. And how not to do this and how not to do that. That's how religion is, isn't it? Try this, try this, try this, try this. But who is like God? Someone once said, you know, biblical Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth where you and I can be honest with God. We can say, you know what, God, you're right. I'm wrong. And I'm the sinner that Jesus Christ came to die for. We don't have to say I'm doing my best. We don't have to say I'm giving her all I got. We don't have to say I'm trying. We don't have to say, well, I'm on step two of ten steps. We don't have to say, I'm on step eight. You just have to say, God, I'm the sinner. <laughs> and Jesus is the Savior. But all the religions say, do this, try this, 
Work on that. See if you can get it right. Without giving you any wisdom on how to do it right, without giving you any strength on how to get... Who is like Aku? Every religion's like Aku. Who's like God? There's no one like God. The last name, Azariah. They wanted to change his name to... I, I, what did they want to change his name to? In English? Abednego. Someone said they tell this story to their children. They say, off to bed you go. But there he was, Azariah. Azariah says, God gives help. God gives help. Or you could say it, God helps me. And the interesting thing is it's in the present tense. Abednego wants to say, servant of Nabu. God helps me, and servant of Nabu. Now, how many, what do we call them in English, lords, masters, help their servants to do the work? So imagine if, if you had a, a cleaning lady, Ricky, and, and you had a cleaning lady that comes over to your house, and so I can't let anybody see my house this dirty, so I'm going to tidy it up before she gets here. Would you do that? No, because we don't help our servants. <laughs> servants are supposed to do all the work. Servant of Nabu, Nabuchadnezzar, that's, that's the connection. Servant of Nabu. But Azariah says Jehovah gives help, or Jehovah helps me. It's in the present tense. Isn't that a, a big difference between do this, do this, do this, do this, and you don't get any of my help, and the God of the Bible, Jehovah, who says, do this, but I don't want you to use any of your own wisdom. I don't want you to use any of your own strength. I want you to do it all in my power, in my wisdom, in the, according to the riches of my grace. I don't want you to do anything but be available. That's why some people say, you know what the best ability to have is availability to God. Just being available to him. Jehovah gives help. Servant of Nabu. Do it, do it, do it. Hurry up, get it done. Well, I need, we need some grass to make these bricks. Well, I ain't giving you no grass to make those bricks, but you got to get those bricks done. And you got to get more of them done. Get it going. And if you don't, you're going to get whipped and whipped and whipped. Isn't that a big difference? Well, you want to build some bricks? Here's the dirt. Here's the clay. Here's the water. Here's the plants you're going to put in and the straw you're going to put in it. Here are the molds you're going to put it in. Here's the sunshine to dry them out. Here's everything you need. And I'm going to give you breakfast in the morning at lunch at lunchtime and dinner at the dinner time, and you're going to get a good night's rest and and all you have to do is be available, and I'm going to do the rest. Now, who would you rather work for? Jehovah or Nabu? You know, beloved, there's a lot of people in this world that still prefer Nabu. I'm going to do this my way. There's a famous song about somebody who's going to do it his way. 
didn't work very well. And sometimes we're so rebellious and we want to do it the way we want to do it. Sometimes we're so arrogant we want to do it the way we want to do it instead of the way God wants to do it. And so we change the meaning of Scripture, even in church, and we say, we're going to do it this way. It doesn't matter that the Bible says do it that way. But, beloved, God's given us a pattern to follow, hasn't he? That, that it's an assembly of believers, a body of Christ, working together for the building up of one another. That's what the Bible says. Oh, no, we, yeah, that's there, but... We're going to do it our way. We're going to have these professionals and, and they're going to do all the work and everybody else is not going to do the work. And they want to do it their way. Now, beloved, God can still bless people and do it their way. God said to Moses, he said, Mo, I want you to talk to that rock. And Moses got a little upset, didn't he? And he didn't talk to the rock. He smacked the rock. Was the result still blessing? Well, sort of physically, they all got water, didn't they? But, but Moses lost something that day, didn't he? He wasn't allowed to go to the promised land anymore. You can do it my way. We can do it your way. You might still see a blessing. You might not. But you know, Hananiah, Jehovah gives grace. You know, Moses still saw the promised land. He got in through the upper door. There he was on the Mount of Transfiguration one day. And God, in his grace, let him in anyways. Isn't that great? That you and I can screw up and still he gives grace? Because... Well, Paul put it this way once, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, didn't he? Isn't that a great thing? And when I this is abounding sin, but where there was abounding sin, grace much more abounded. There was much more extra to cover that sin. And beloved, that's how God is. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, a symbol of the world, wanted to wipe away the testimony of God. But they never did it. Daniel's always referred to as Daniel. Oh yeah, they call him Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when we get to chapter 4, 3, I forget now. But they never lose their testimonies. They tried to change them. Dickens wrote a book called The Tale of Two Cities. And God wrote a book. He didn't call it The Tale of Two Cities, but it's, it is a tale about two cities, isn't it? It's about Babylon and Jerusalem. And it's not about where you live. But which city you live for? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah lived in Babylon. But they lived for Jerusalem. 
Beloved, you and I live in the world, but we don't live for this world. We live for, for another city, don't we? Whose builder, whose architect is God, just like Abraham did. Time's up. God tries and God keeps his testimony. He's God and he can do that. They tried to change the name sometimes in this world. And Babylon always wants, has to do with names. Remember in the beginning, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Changed languages. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 12. God says to Abraham, and I'm going to make a name for you. The world wants to change names, change meanings. What's a parent? What's a marriage? What's a family? What's education? What's punishment? The world changes all those meanings. When I was a boy, they had one meaning. Well, it's because now you're old and, 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 and English is a living language and it changes its meanings, and it, and it does. But even yesterday when we were a lot of people in, in costumes yesterday, I was noting that when I was young, and this was a long time ago, some of you remember these days, but when I was young, they used to have this thing called the circus. And the circus had these things called clowns. And clowns were supposed to make you laugh. They were good. But now good's evil. And the clowns are the murderers. Used to be Freddy Krueger and Jason and Elm Street. And for some reason, girls in high heels in the middle of the forest. Why do you wear high heels in the middle of the forest? I'll never figure that out to make the movie better, I guess, because you can't run in high heels. But now the, the happy clowns are the murderers, and you're supposed to be scared of them. You see, even they're changing the definition of clown. But those who stand for the Lord, who stand upon his word, these are the ones that shall endure forever. And one day, sort of as we were singing, one day we'll get to, to our eternal home. And we want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your salvation. You've let me work long and hard in your life. <laughs> You've been available. You didn't try to do it by yourself. <laughs> because I helped. And I give help. And you've been faithful at being available. And you let me work through you. You were that channel of blessing. So come on in. Enter into the joy of your salvation. This is the fruit of your labor for that life you spent on earth. Resisting evil and standing for God in a godless world. Enter on in. Beloved, 
two big lessons tonight. One is God's always in control, even when it seems like we're passing through hell. Step on the gas. Don't let the devil know. Keep your eyes focused on the road ahead. Keep your eyes on the Lord looking up. Not at the mountains, but a little bit higher to the creator of the mountains and the heavens. And the world's trying to change us and give us a different testimony. But hold fast to what is good. Test all things. Throw away what's evil. The Lord bless you. Our Father in heaven, this evening we would like to thank you for Daniel, for Hananiah, for Mishael, and for Azariah, and for even the, the testimony that their names give. They encourage us. And we ask that we would be given the strength to stand in the Lord and the power of his might. We also pray that you would help us to understand in those trials and tribulations of life that you're still in control and that you work all things out together for good to make us more like the Lord Jesus. And that you and you alone, because there's nobody like you, you have the ability to make all things beautiful in your time. So we pray for your blessing on your word tonight. We thank you for those who had birthdays this last month. We thank you for the refreshment that you've prepared for us and the meal and the cake. Some of us were wondering when the preacher was going to end because it smells so good, and we'd just like to thank you for those hands that diligently labored. And we ask your blessing on those hands, and your blessing on the food, and your blessing on our time of fellowship together. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.